0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchal, broadcasting remotely. The pandemic rages on and nowhere is the toll more evident than in communities of color. In Connecticut, black residents are two and a half times more likely to die from COVID than white residents. The death rate among Hispanics is 67% higher than non-white Hispanics. That's according to the Connecticut Mirror. And COVID vaccinations have not been distributed equitably. Today, where we live, we talk with Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin about how the city is dealing with the disproportionate impact on its residents and its finances. And later, we'll ask the mayor about his other leadership roles, from president of the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities to being co-chair of a group pushing for a $105 billion high-speed rail project that could help the New England region. Now, if you live in Hartford, we want to hear from you. What questions do you have for Mayor Bronin? Here's the number, 888 720 9677 that's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Mayor Bronin, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks so much, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start with vaccinations. Uh, we know everyone's reacting this week to uh, the, the new strategy, the new plan under uh, Governor Lamont to vaccinate as many people as possible based mostly on age. So that means the state will not move forward forward with vaccinating essential workers ahead of others. And this is quite a change from what the governor had been saying, including the importance of following CDC guidelines. So as mayor of Hartford, when you think about the residents you serve, how does this plan affect them?
2: Lucy, our, our focus has been on trying to make sure that vaccines are as accessible uh, and uh, as available in our community as possible, regardless of what the eligibility requirements are. You know, you, you've seen across the country some pretty stark disparities in vaccination rates uh, for communities of color compared with non-communities of color. And so our focus has been on uh, trying to work with our partners, just as we did on testing, to make sure that there is a a quilt, uh, a, a, a a robust network of vaccination sites using mobile clinics, using our hospitals, our federally qualified health centers, our own health department. And I think the reality is that right now there are more folks eligible than have gotten the vaccine. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time worrying about the decisions the governor's making on eligibility requirements. What I'm worried about and focused on is trying to make sure that we get that vaccine out to everyone who is eligible and get them vaccinated as quickly as possible.
0: So the last uh, month or so, we know that uh, residents over 75 years old and now over 65 are eligible. So how many residents in your city who've been eligible for this have gotten the vaccine? Have you been able to track that? And is it broken down along uh, racial lines? It's
2: it's not broken down in as much detail as we wish. What I can tell you is that about 7% of our community has gotten the vaccine Uh, but again there are still folks over 75 who have not been vaccinated there are folks over 65 who have not been vaccinated Uh, what we're doing is trying to make sure that we're not just waiting for folks to come to us though we're we're doing proactive outreach and that includes calling every phone number that we have or that we can find that we think belongs to somebody who's eligible and reaching out Uh, you know one of the big obstacles to vaccinations here and in a lot of communities like hartford was that the early uh, systems for getting appointments were really uh, kind of cumbersome and they required uh, connectivity, they required some amount of uh, familiarity with uh, you know, going online, uh, you had to have an email address. There were a lot of things that became obstacles for a lot of seniors in our community and so we've tried to get rid of those. You know, We've built a, a really simple vaccine interest form on our website so somebody can go on and just give very basic information and then we'll reach out to them and help them schedule. And then we've encouraged our community to sign up a senior. You know, If you know somebody, if you love somebody, if you live next to somebody who is eligible and hasn't gotten signed up, uh, help them do that. And then of course, things like giving rides to folks uh, if they don't have a car and uh, again, working on mobile clinic delivery and putting vaccine clinics in the community rather than just relying on the big Mm -hmm. central sites. But there's a long, long way to go.
0: How many of these mobile clinics do you have, Mayor Bronin? And has this been something that has uh, increased just recently? Or I'm just curious about, um, when we think about vaccine supply, obviously it doesn't meet the demand. But as right. we keep hearing that we the, the state expects to get more vaccines, how is the state communicating to you and your health officials about the kind of supply you're going to have the next few weeks and months?
2: I think the state is doing the best they can with the information that they have. But as you know, from the start, there's been a lot of uh, difficulty predicting how much supply was going to come. I think that got a whole lot better on January 20th when the Biden administration came in and you've seen that supply ramp up. We also, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were finally able to look out a few weeks and have a rough idea of how many doses we were gonna get. And that made a big, big difference. Uh, but I think the state team has done a great job. I, I, I give a huge amount of credit to the governor's team, to Josh Jabal, Michelle Gil- Gilman, Jirja Griffith, uh, all the folks who are working on it. And we've had very, very strong communication with them. Um, to your point about you know, mobile clinics, this is an area where I would like to see a much more dramatic ramp up but we have uh, both through our own health department and through the hospitals and fqhcs been going to apartment buildings where we have a whole lot of seniors uh, going to senior buildings going to shelters uh, going to congregate living settings and bringing the vaccine there this past week we also announced a uh, a pair of community based vaccination clinics one at the parker center in the northeast neighborhood and one at the South End Senior Wellness Center down in the South End, so that uh, we had clinics available Monday through Friday in our neighborhoods. Uh, There too, I'd like to see an expansion of the number of sites, but if you couple those with the large scale vaccinations that we're doing on a weekly basis at Dunkin' Donuts Park, with the daily vaccination clinics that the hospitals are running, which really have the largest volume and can handle the largest volume, and with the work that our FQHCs are doing, I think that we have made a huge amount of progress in making sure that the vaccine and vaccination sites are accessible. The part that we're going to be hammering on every single day is making sure that our residents know about them and know how to get appointments at those sites.
0: Mm. You know, the Lamont administration has gotten pushback from health equity advocates with the, the messaging uh, from the governor and others that uh, black and brown residents are hesitant to get this vaccine and they say that access is the bigger issue. Uh, not just getting someone to a clinic, but when you think about uh, the, the number of your residents who may lack affordable health care, they may not have a regular relationship with a doctor, they've got food insecurity, unstable housing, all of these other things that are happening uh, Mayor Bronin. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the messaging to your residents and what needs to improve.
2: I think I think all of those obstacles that you just talked about are absolutely right. And there's been a, a debate and a lot of discussion about how much of a role vaccine hesitancy has played in the disparity. I think that the honest answer is nobody really knows. There is some vaccine hesitancy, but I there's no question that it's not just that and there are many many access issues uh, again you know that's why we've been focused on trying to reduce those barriers to access and having our community uh, out- outreach workers making phone calls encouraging neighbors to talk with neighbors uh, encouraging our and working with our federally qualified health centers, which are you know our local community health centers that are uh, for many of our residents, they are primary care. They are the point of access to the healthcare system. Making sure that they have a central role to play in this, uh, all of that is important. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I think to some extent it's a, a matter of uh, time and people seeing that the vaccine uh, can and should be trusted. I, I keep repeating every chance I get these vaccines are safe. They're effective. The president of the United States has gotten it. The vice president has gotten it. The governor has gotten it. Uh, I'll get it as soon as I'm eligible to get it. Uh, So that that folks really recognize that they are safe, they're effective. And the way we're going to beat this thing is by getting vaccinated. But uh, our focus has been on getting that message out in every way that we can, again, including direct phone calls. And and we're going to be ramping up door knocking as well to try to go uh, house by house, home by home and uh, share that information. I hope that having those sites available in the neighborhoods will also make a difference.
0: You're hearing Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin here on Where We Live. If you live in Hartford, we wanna hear from you. If you have a question for your mayor, 888-720- 888-720- 9677. That's 888-720- WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. Let's talk about schools. Uh, we know that uh, many Hartford students have been on a hybrid schedule because of the pandemic and so for people who don't have kids in school that means they're partially in class and then also doing some remote school during the week. Uh, now we're hearing that fewer than half of high school students in Hartford are on track for graduation. Next week, Hartford students pre-K through grade nine will transition back to five days a week. How worried are you about the consequences on what this pandemic has meant for learning as well as social-emotional um, needs for Hartford students, Mayor Bronin? Uh,
2: Lucy, in terms of the long-term impact of this pandemic there is nothing that worries me more i think that this sh- needs to be our uh, focus nationally statewide and here in Hartford and communities like Hartford you know the we worked hard and i'm really proud to say that uh, our school system our superintendent and her team uh, working in partnership with the city Uh, kept some form of in-person school option available this entire school year. You know, we were offering a fully in-person five-day-a-week option through from the beginning of the school year through mid-November. We then went hybrid. And we announced last week that we're shifting back to offering that full five-day-a-week in-person option starting March 1st, this coming Monday. And I I think there are very few uh, large school districts uh, in the state or even uh, in many parts of the country that have had some form of in-person school all the way through. That said, uh, the majority of students have not opted into that in-person school option. We've seen devastating levels of disengagement uh, and absenteeism. And even for those who are engaged and are going online, we know that uh, remote learning is is no substitute for, and never will be a substitute for in-person learning. And the impact on kids has been devastating. I mean, you talked about the percentage of uh, you know, seniors who are uh, not who uh, aren't going to have enough credits uh, to, to graduate. Uh, but if you look throughout the grade levels, you also see kids who are falling behind in really, really uh, dangerous and, and ways. And and I think that the recovery from that is not going to be the work of a single semester or a single summer or a single year. This is gonna be a multi-year effort to help kids catch up on the educational side, but just as important to to re-engage and reconnect and heal on the social emotional side. And that's the partnership that we're going to be focused on with our school district, where they're focused on, you know, on that learning loss and on trying to bring kids back up to speed educationally. And we want to support in every way we can on the engagement and uh, activities and things that bring people back together and help our kids heal. Uh, It's going to be a multi-year effort. And, And that's also one of the reasons why the relief bill that is being considered down in Washington right now is so critical because this is going to take an enormous amount of resources nationwide. It's got to take and it and it deserves an unprecedented investment to help our kids get back on track.
0: You mentioned federal money. Has the governor's administration released uh, uh, the CARES money, enough of it to schools around the state, including in Hartford, to help with uh, these challenges, Mayor Bronin?
2: there's been some funding released already. There's been some funding announced to be released. And then there's more funding being considered down in Washington. Uh, You know, I think that in terms of getting through the school year, uh, our, our district is an okay for, say, from a financial standpoint. But in terms of making that long-term investment that goes above and beyond and way above and beyond what we normally do, that's where that continued massive infusion of resources into education and uh, supporting kids through this recovery is going to be necessary. It's It's not just about this moment in the pandemic. It's about what comes next.
0: Let's talk about some of the ideas to support uh, Hartford students. Uh, So many of them, as you mentioned, chronically absent uh, that have not been engaged and the repercussions of that. Uh, We've heard uh, the superintendent talk about longer school days, the possibility of summer school. That's going to take resources, money and staff. Is there a worry that uh, you you won't be able to get the teachers union on board with this? And how does that jive with what parents want in your city?
2: So there's been a lot of data for a long time that extended day and extended year can make a big difference in combating the achievement gap and in in supporting kids uh, in their learning. So I think there are a lot of reasons we should be looking at that, uh, even uh, even aside from the pandemic. I think there's no question if we're being honest with ourselves that the recovery from this is going to require us to be doing things differently and doing things more and we're gonna have to do a whole lot over the summer. But yes, I mean, to your point, it's not that I worry about the teachers unions, I think the 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 unions and the teachers, they want to teach, they want kids to learn. Uh, but. There's also no question that this last year has put an enormous and unprecedented burden on teachers, too. And we have to recognize that our teachers are burnt out. So, yeah, we're going to have to be really thoughtful in how we staff these programs, in, in how we build them so that they work for kids and for educators. But we have to do them. We have to make sure that we're going above and beyond. And as you said, yes, it'll take massive resources. Uh, and, and resources on the scale that only the federal government can provide, which is why you know I'm, I'm glad and relieved to see uh, the the Biden administration uh, trying to mobilize in a serious way.
0: You're hearing Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin here on Where We Live. If you have a question, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. Thank you This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, My guest today, Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin. If you live in the capital city, we want to hear from you what questions you have for him. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, the current and others reported Mayor Bronin that you're helping lead a private initiative to drive a massive regional economy spanning New York and New England by establishing high-speed rail between Manhattan and Boston. You're co-chairing the North Atlantic Rail Program. Uh, Tony's calling in from Hartford and has a specific question about this program. Hi, Tony, go ahead.
2: Hi, uh, Mayor Bronin. The, the high-speed rail discussions are important at the federal level and regionally, and we need many routes to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I'm, I'm worried that getting distracted by decades out high-speed rail misses the very near-term resident mobility needs. New Haven's Mayor Elliker worked with their legislators to fund expanded evening and weekend bus transit service in the 2021 state budget. And that's a huge jobs access and economic justice accomplishment. I'm, I'm curious what you think about those near-term mobility needs in such a low-car ownership community. Sure. Uh, thanks, Tony. I think it's a great question. And I agree with you. Uh, there's, there's a lot that we need to do on mobility broadly. I think expanding the uh, bus service and uh and potentially lowering bus cost is something that we should be focused on uh there's also a long way for us to go in terms of uh, bike pedestrian infrastructure you know our city council has before it right now uh the product of a a complete streets working group it's complete streets plan uh that's in front of them now Uh, and we've developed a an ambitious bike pedestrian plan that will take uh resources and years to do so we have a long long way to go Uh, There's no question about it, and I don't think of these as mutually exclusive. Uh, I do think, though, that in Connecticut as a whole, we can't afford to uh, to not push for some transformational things. You know, if you look at Connecticut's growth trajectory, if you look at the the need for us to reposition our state and to grow in order, uh, not just to handle the large long-term liabilities that we have as a state, but to create opportunities that keep our young residents here and help us become the vibrant state we need to be. I think we gotta do some large scale transformative things. And I really do believe that high speed rail uh, and fast frequent rail service that connects us in not just to New York and to Boston, to mid-sized cities throughout New England is one of the most transformative things we could do. And I think it would change the game and change the economic game for a lot of Connecticut communities. So I think we got to do both. But I do believe that this right now is the moment to push for something bold and ambitious when it comes to infrastructure. You've got a president who has committed to it and who understands the power of rail. You've got a secretary of transportation who understands not just the power of rail, but also the potential power of mid-sized cities. You've got a Congress that seems committed to infrastructure. And some of these ideas, which may have seemed pie in the sky 20 or 30 years ago, are now ideas that have been implemented in dozens of industrialized countries. And we need to catch up. So mm-hmm. I agree with your question, your the premise your question. We got a lot to do locally, but I don't think that we should miss the opportunity to push for something ambitious and transformative at this moment when it actually might be possible for the first time in generations in America.
0: You're saying it could be possible because the Biden administration's proposed two trillion dollars of infrastructure uh, towards uh, maybe uh, funding something like a, a rail project like this. But let's talk about how big this project uh, would be, Mayor Bronin, estimated right now to be $105 billion. Uh, who would be the private partners to help leverage this federal investment? And how long would it take? There's a lot of uh, ch- barriers in place when we think about where uh, this would be uh, tunneled through and environmental uh, concerns as well. Can you walk us through that?
2: Sure. There's there's a lot of questions still to be answered in terms of what the Biden administration's infrastructure package is going to look like. What that funding mechanism is, to what extent it relies on public-private uh, partnerships. So there's there's plenty of work to be done there. But I think, to to the other part of your question, uh, there's a team that has been working on on a plan, a credible, strong plan for a number of years now, uh, and uh, it it is a multi-year plan. This is not something that, you know, you flip the switch and it's it's there in a year or two, but aspects of it could be under construction in a year or two. So just to give you some examples, it starts with the first phase of it uh, would be improvements uh, to the service and speed on the New Haven line. It would be the construct you know, from New York to New Haven. It would be the construction of east-west commuter rail service in Massachusetts, which would connect Springfield into Boston. Uh, There would be line improvements in other parts of New England to to spur lines and other commuter lines that would make an immediate difference. Uh, The next phase of it is that true high-speed rail trunk, which would connect New York City across Long Island up to New Haven, Hartford, Providence, Boston. And then the last phase is linking in the many, many mid-sized cities in New England, that should be much more tightly connected to each other and to those big metro centers. Now, if you think even just about that phase one, about the speed and service improvements on the New Haven line and about finishing uh, the commuter rail east-west in Massachusetts, for a city like Hartford, those things alone could be transformative. The ability to get more quickly between New York and Hartford and the ability finally to take a train from Hartford to Boston would make an enormous difference. So even those phase one things that are more near term are are potentially transformative. But the bigger, longer term vision, which is, you know, a couple of decades uh, of implementation work, I think changes the game for not just Connecticut, as I said earlier, but all of New England and southern New York.
0: Hmm. Is it damaging when you hear one of our congressional uh, delegation members, Senator Blumenthal, saying that this project is potentially environmentally damaging, very likely low-balled, and again, there's competition with other regions of our country to get this infrastructure money, Mayor Brunen?
2: No, I've had some really good conversations with Senator Blumenthal. Obviously, we're all going to be sensitive to environmental concerns. I think that uh, one important thing to to correct, though, or to understand is that Mm -hmm. The the aspect of this project, which is uh, which includes a tunnel under Long Island Sound, uh, would not have a an impact on the ecology of the sound. It's possible with existing technology to do that at a deep enough level that it really leaves the ecology of the sound undisturbed. We're going to be talking with uh, Save the Sound and a number of environmental organizations. That environmental uh, impact is is critical. Uh, it's also important, though, to note that from a uh, from a green job standpoint and from a climate stewardship standpoint and uh, positioning America to be less dependent on, uh, on fossil fuels, this is one of the most significant investments you could make. This is one of the most important parts of a climate agenda that you can push. So it's about connectivity. It's about jobs. But it's also hugely about climate, uh, you know, to the point about competing with other parts of the country. I don't know that we have to think about it as competing if there really is a large scale national infrastructure initiative. If you're talking about a 2 trillion dollar investment in America's infrastructure, which is long long overdue, then you're talking about, you know, 5% of that going to a region that has more than 10% of the country's population and contributes 14 percent of the country's GDP. So I don't think it's unreasonable to say uh, that we should fight for that. It's also, you know, worth noting that uh, you've got some really strong congressional leaders from these New England states uh, and from New York, and you have, uh, you know, be- between those seven states, you got 14 senators uh, who can all be working toward this. So part of what we're going to be doing in the weeks and months ahead is working to build that coalition as broadly and as strongly as possible.
0: So we'll have to revisit the North Atlantic Rail uh, program uh, later on where we live. Uh, I wanted to take some calls now. Again, Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin with us, eight eight eight87 720 9677 Naeem is calling in. Naeem, what's your question?
1: Good morning. Uh, I have a question for my dear friend.
0: Oh, <laughs> and looks like we lost him. But I do see in the chat field he wants to know what you're going to do to bring back jobs in Hartford, Mayor Bronin.
2: Well, that's that is a, a huge question. You know, we've been focused on trying to grow jobs here uh, for for uh, a while prior to the pandemic, and we're obviously going to be focused intensely on that now and and in the years to come. I think there's a bunch of different pieces of it. Uh, one, we worked hard to build what hadn't really existed here, which is an innovation ecosystem where we're, attracting and building a community around industries like InsurTech and advanced manufacturing and digital health. And we've made a lot of progress in that arena, and you know, we, we've got to keep that up. Yesterday, uh, I was with the governor visiting a, a Hartford-based company that uh, is a drone uh, developer and drone manufacturer doing it right here in Hartford. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities for companies like that, and we're going to be aggressive in, in going after them. There's also a huge amount that we need to continue to do to support local businesses as they recover from this pandemic. And there too, I'm hopeful that we may have some opportunities that we didn't have before when this federal relief bill passes. You know, One of the things that's in that bill right now is funding for local governments to, uh, the language is to address the economic impact of the pandemic. And I don't think there's any question that the economic impact has been profound and devastating for so many small businesses so i'm hopeful that we may have the resources to actually uh, do things that we have wanted to do but not been able to do in the past to work directly with those businesses to help them grow uh, and then there's a the workforce development side and the the governor has done a lot on workforce development the workforce Development Board uh, in Central Connecticut, which is Capital Workforce Partners, uh, was successful in getting a pretty significant grant recently to go after that. So those are three areas where we're going to have to push as aggressively and as quickly as we can. The last thing I'd say is that the, a big part of our mission as a city in trying to attract, retain, create jobs is making sure that we are as vibrant and active and energetic a city as possible. we had made a huge amount of progress in doing that coming into 2020. You know, you saw, I think, just a, a level of energy that hadn't been there in the city for many, many years. And COVID was a gut punch. You know, it, it felt like we, we got sacked 30 yards back. Uh, and a city that thrives on bringing people together at theaters, at music venues, at uh, festivals, uh, at sports stadiums, uh, we lost that. And I, I think that a big part of our focus has to be re-energizing that as quickly as we can, as soon as we can safely and responsibly do it.
0: Mm-hmm. You can join our conversation again with Mayor Bronan. He's with us for about 10 more minutes, 888 Ken's calling in. Ken, what's your question? Good Ken, morning. can you hear me? Yes, go ahead.
1: Yes, uh, Mayor Bronan, I'm,
2: I'm deeply concerned about the uh, appearance and if not actual existence of corruption in Hartford Court of Common Council Right now, uh, attorney John Kennelly is refusing to turn over documents related to his um, representation of the Court of Common Council. And then you have TJ Clark, who's been, uh, had to have the city pay $140,000 out in sexual harassment suit. It's difficult to see how the city can be ethical when its uh, legislative body is riddled with problems and Molly Rosado's leadership is really questionable what are you going to do to address this uh appearance of corruption it's really important for us to understand this uh well can i i you know to your question about the city council hiring an attorney the city council has the right to hire an attorney and i'm not sure i understand what your allegation of corruption is i i i don't understand the point you're making about that you know they have the right to hire an attorney. They've hired an attorney, uh, and uh, I, I don't know what I don't know what to tell you because I don't really understand the, the premise of that question. I don't think it's an accurate one.
0: Uh, we heard from Alyssa, uh, who emailed and said our police department is hemorrhaging officers, meaning the Hartford Police Department to other departments, and uh, also says you are now negotiating quote the worst pay and benefits package in the region in comparison to small Connecticut cities. Now, if you were the worst compensated police officer, would you want to help Hartford solve its worsening crime? So, can you talk about um, again how you are working to bolster the police department, but also you know what's happening in your city related uh, to crime, Mayor Bronin?
2: Sure. Uh, she is absolutely right. There, There is uh, a challenge for us, which is that there are a lot of suburban districts, or suburban cities and towns that pay more than we do. And this gets to a bigger issue, which is, you know, there's often a misperception of wasteful spending in cities. But the reality is, if you look at spending and if you look at compensation and benefits between some of our cities in Connecticut including Hartford and then some of our sub- suburbs especially more affluent suburbs what you find is a higher level of per capita spending in those suburbs including in pay and benefits and we do lose employees not just in our police force but we do lose employees to other towns that pay more and this has been one of our one of our challenges because as you know Lucy when i came in the city was in Uh, acute financial crisis. The city was insolvent and would have had no trouble satisfying the bankruptcy uh, test five uh, five years ago. We worked hard to get the city into a place where we can be financially sustainable uh, with a lot of work still to do. We also, as part of that, we did ask a lot from our employees. We made some significant changes to pensions, to healthcare. Uh, we had four years of zero wage increases. Uh, the reality is that does create a tension for us as we try to make sure that we are keeping the city on a sound fiscal track. We also have to recognize that uh, we've got to try to stay competitive and we've got to balance those two needs and those two pressures. Uh, but it's a, it's a real challenge And I think it's important for folks to understand that point, that cities often are at this point offering less uh, attractive pay and benefits than more affluent suburbs. And that creates a real challenge for cities.
0: Can we talk about how you're working to improve community relations with uh, the police in your city? I know uh, after all of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, a new inspector general, that position was created to work with uh, the Civilian Police Review Board. Can you tell us when that position will be filled and uh, how you expect that will help when we think about how the community um, talks about their police and gets issues resolved, Mayor Bronin?
2: Sure. So, you know, Hartford's had a civilian police review board for many years, but uh, it had a lot of deficiencies, I think, in the design. But and we also struggled to make it to make it work right. I, I, there's no question about it. So, this past summer and fall, uh, we worked with the city council and with the community to enact what I think is one of the most uh, progressive civilian police review board ordinances that you'll find in the country, and that includes. Giving it more authority, so that it has the ability to challenge and uh, overturn decisions made by the police chief. Uh, it has the uh, ability uh, at the, um, you know, at at the uh, board's uh, direction has the ability uh, to uh, issue subpoenas. It also has this permanent position supporting it of the inspector general and i think that's a really important piece too because this is a vo- it's a volunteer part-time board it needs that full-time dedicated st- uh, support and it's not just from the inspector general we also created a director of equity and opportunity in the city which is focused uh, karen taylor uh, recently came on to that role and uh, she's phenomenal and she's focused across the city but including in this in this arena and Uh, We're in the process right now of hiring that inspector general. Uh, We have a number of candidates who applied. Uh, We have a a list of candidates that will soon be uh, up for interviews. The process is that uh, myself and the uh, city council president and the chair of the CPRB will uh, interview those candidates. And uh, we've got a few more spots to, to fill on the CPRB itself, but the deadline we set for ourselves in that ordinance for implementation was the end of March, and we're working hard to make sure we meet that deadline. Uh, so that that is one important part of, of the work that we're doing, but it's by no means the only part. You know, we've, we've also... Uh, Been working to design a civilian uh, crisis response team, a a team that is able to respond to calls for service that don't necessarily require police response, but that historically police have often responded to. You know, situations involving uh, mental health uh, distress, uh, um, emotional distress, uh, addiction. Things where having somebody who is specifically trained in dealing with those situations and isn't law enforcement can sometimes be more productive for everybody involved. So we're building that now. Um, and then we've tried really hard to to just get uh, more walk beats out there. So our police are you know, more visible on the street, on their feet, uh, out of their cars. That's been a long time goal. And we've worked hard to build up the staffing to make that possible. Uh, so you know, this is a conversation we could dedicate a whole hour to. But those are a few a few things that we're working on.
0: Mm-hmm. So the inspector general, you have uh, people that you're going to be interviewing. But do you expect that person will be hired by the end of March, Mayor
2: Bronin? I certainly hope so. And I do think so.
0: Uh, Before we run out of time, I mentioned you're uh, president of the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities. Uh, This group represents interests of cities and towns around the state. So how do you see your role benefiting Hartford? And when we think about the pandemic's toll, again, a lot of uh, emphasis on getting support from the federal government. But what do you want to see coming from the General Assembly to help your city?
2: Look, I I don't see my role as president of CCM as specifically, you know, what can I get out of it for Hartford? It's how do we build a coalition of cities and towns across the state of Connecticut? That have a lot of common interests. You know, every community is wrestling with a lot of the challenges that that we are right now. One of the first uh, and most basic things is making sure that uh, you know the, that there's no harm done at this point to communities that are still that are reeling from this pandemic. So it's preserving, uh, you know, at the very very basic level, uh, making sure that more burdens aren't placed on communities. But it's also pushing for things that uh, have been long sought by a lot of communities. For example, more full funding of the pilot. Form. Formula, payments in lieu of taxes for cities and towns, and it's not just cities. There are also a number of towns that have uh, non-taxable property uh, that makes up a significant part of their t- of their property in the city, and so they have trouble raising the revenue that's necessary. So that's one of the things we're pushing for. The other thing is just to make sure that we, as cities and towns of every size, represented by Republicans and Democrats alike are at the table in a productive, collaborative way, you know, including on things like issues like uh, like zoning reform and uh, making sure that we are not just uh, as as communities, not just um, uh, throwing up a wall and say we don't want any changes, but that we're sitting there and saying, let's let's work together collaboratively to make some changes that will be positive for all of our communities and for our state as a whole.
0: I want to fit in a a listener call. It relates uh, to CCM and your role representing municipalities. Gary, go ahead with your question. We just have a short amount of time.
2: Okay. The question I had was what could be done to address the issue that the citizens of Hartford and similar cities actually subsidize the operations of state government by underfunding the payment of taxes. Suburban cities just don't pay their fair share when you look at where the bulk of the benefits go. Mayor Bronin. So this issue, you're, you're, you know, as I just mentioned, uh, you're exactly right that the issue of payment of little taxes is a really significant issue. And it is also true, as you said, that there are a small number of communities that bear an enormous responsibility uh, for their regions as a whole. You know, you got a city like Hartford that is host to state government and many state buildings, uh, but also to hospitals that serve the entire region in the state, to colleges uh, that serve folks well beyond our region, uh, to countless social service agencies that are located here uh, to um, things like the trash-burning power plant down in the South Meadows uh, and Brainerd Airport and countless other things that don't contribute an awful lot to the city but serve the region uh, as a whole and beyond. And that's why uh, pushing for more full funding for payment of low taxes, meaning reimbursing uh, towns for the Revenue lost by having all of that non-taxable property is a really important part of getting to a more equitable system of funding local government in Connecticut. You know, the, the bigger issue is is this, though. It's not just about non-taxable property. I think the conversation we have to have in Connecticut is is one that recognizes that when property tax is the only real source of locally generated revenue you have massive disparities because you have in some communities huge gaps between what the tax base will support and what basic provision of services costs we're not talking about lavish services we're talking about just basic core services uh the federal reserve bank of boston has done a a really powerful study on this showing that you have communities in Connecticut with Hartford at the top of the list that uh, cannot meet that basic level of services with the tax resources available. And on the other hand, you've got a lot of communities in Connecticut that have more than enough. And that actually ties in back to to the, uh, the issue we were talking about earlier about uh, the differential pay and benefits between some Connecticut towns. So it's a big issue. Pilot is a piece of it. I'm hopeful that the pilot... Uh, We'll make some progress on the pilot issue. CCM has been strongly supportive of a proposal that's in front of the Connecticut General Assembly right now, excuse me, right now to uh, to build a fairer and more fully funded payment and low taxes formula. So I'm hopeful there'll be action on that pretty soon.
0: We're going to end it there. Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin. thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks so much, Lucy, for having me.
0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, we'll hear from Hartford City reporter from the Hartford Current, Rebecca Laurie, to give us some context from some of the things we heard Mayor L- Bronin discuss. You can join us too. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Joining us now is Rebecca Laurie. She covers the city of Hartford for the Hartford Current. Rebecca,
1: welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you for having me.
0: We just have a few minutes. I wanted to start with, uh, you know, we had a caller ask about the settlement uh, related to Councilman T.J. Clark. Uh, the, the mayor did not have a, a answer to that particular question about corruption. Can you tell us briefly about that settlement? Give us some context around that.
1: Oh, sure. So um, yes, he did did kind of dodge the the questions that were asked about the presence of what what seems to be, if not outright corruption. I mean, we don't have any, um, you know, I haven't written a story saying there's corruption on city council, but there's there's frequently little things that feel not quite right or not quite transparent. Um, this is one issue that's been settled. Uh, TJ. Clark was the majority leader on council when he was accused of sexual harassment. Um, that has been, uh, he was accused by a, a council aide, it raised the issues of, of what authority the city has to address sexual harassment um, by or involving a city councilman, because of the reach of the Human Resources Department, does it apply to a, an elected official? But that case has been um, settled with with the settlement.
0: I guess there's a story that you'd written back in the spring of last year. Uh, they, Hartford, agreed to pay a former city council assistant, assistant one hundred forty thousand dollars to settle her lawsuit, claiming sexual harassment by then council president uh, Thomas T.J. Clark. Is that correct?
1: Yes, and he, he uh, you know, remains on council as, um, you know, the majority leader today.
0: Uh, as you were listening to, to Mayor Bronin, uh, what stood out to you in terms of talking about whether it's vaccine access or the the monumental challenges before uh, the Hartford uh, School District, thinking about how the pandemic has affected so many students, Rebecca?
1: Well, I think um, you know it, he, what he talked about with the vaccination plan. It, it's very valid that in Hartford, it's it's not the city itself that is responsible for most of the vaccines, so. In that way, Hartford is very different than a lot of communities that might be struggling um, with vaccine distribution. Um, they really had a good model, it seems, with the uh, testing clinics that they set up, and and they've tried to replicate that with vaccinations. Um, education seems to be a lot harder of a challenge for Hartford to kind of wrap its hands around. Um, you know, in any given week, about thirteen. 100 students on average are not attending even one class in Hartford schools, and the majority of those are remote learners and the district is still working on a plan to address that and. They're kind of keeping things a little bit close to the vest I mean they announced very suddenly that they're moving students back to fully in person Um, we're still waiting to hear what they have planned for the summer and for you know future years.
0: And the mayor, you know, I asked a question about, uh, you know, the, the teachers union, uh, maybe not being on board with longer days or summer school because everyone is fatigued. But when we think about resources, Rebecca, if the teacher union isn't on board, how's it going to happen?
1: Right. It's true. They they did say, um, you know, initially that they would not support a longer school day. And I've heard the point made too, that if if the student is absent, they're not going to show up because the school day is longer. They're just going to be absent from a longer school day. Um, they, ha- they haven't given a stance on a, a, a more year-round school model. Um, so there, there is a chance that they you know might be supportive of that. But I think everyone is, is trying to acknowledge that teachers are worn out and stressed just like students. But what they're actually going to do about that no one's really said. Um, I will say the the challenge they're facing, we're starting to see what some schools are doing. Um, McDonough Middle School in Hartford had the highest chronic absentee rate of any school with 80% of their students chronically absent this year. They've been really active on social media and they they posted the other day that staff made 5,900 phone calls and more than 100 um, home visits in their like recent efforts to reduce that. So that just gives you an idea of, how much work it takes for a tiny neighborhood middle school to address this problem.
0: We didn't have a lot of time to talk about a crime in Hartford. We know when the pandemic started there was a drop and in the fall there was a serious increase in crime. Uh, what are you watching, uh, Rebecca, in terms of, of how the city is responding uh, to, to pr- particular areas and where there have been improvements?
1: We typically see crime Slow down this time of year um, and pick back up. You know, it, when when the weather gets warmer. So um, I, I think that might be why we've seen a little bit of a drop um, as things start to open up and the weather improves. I don't think anybody really knows if if we're going to see a lot more uh, violence, but it is kind of what we saw during last summer, in part because people were in like really intense isolation at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, March and April. And when people got out and they were still under so much stress, it seemed to lead to a lot of conflict. Um, you know, there's a lot of desperation still because of the economic fallout of the pandemic. And and if you agree that the pandemic had a big impact on crime, and, and I I do, um, I think we're in for that again, probably. And, and the department is still facing this problem that you guys did talk about of losing a lot of young officers, um, in part because of their their lower pay and and the strains that they're under. So whether they'll have to bring in, you know, state detectives again to help them out, I think um, we're going to have to wait and see.
0: That's Rebecca Laurie again. She's She covers the city of Hartford. For The Hartford Current, we'll tweet out some links to your reporting, Rebecca. Thanks for coming on and giving us some context. We appreciate it.
1: Sure. Thank you.
0: Today's show was produced by Matt Dwyer. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Uh, Tomorrow we're going to have the DPH acting commissioner Deidre Gifford on to answer all your questions about vaccinations. We hope you can join us.